0: Welcome to episode 5 of Bad Gays, a podcast where we uncover the dark side of gay men in history. I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and novelist. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, gay historian, and a member of the board of the Gay Museum in Berlin. And each episode we'll be profiling a different gay villain from history, looking at their life in context and how their sexuality has informed
1: their infamy. We want to complicate gay history by talking about evil and complicated people. We're focusing on men because cis men are definitionally the most bad, And we're trying to ask why we don't remember our villains sometimes as well as we remember our heroes.
0: Last week, we talked about a king whose debatably homosexual relationship with his favourites totally destabilised
1: British politics. Who are we profiling this week, Ben? Well, this week we're talking about somebody that I spend a lot of time wishing I could forget about. Uh, Andrew Sullivan, who is a gay Catholic conservative journalist, um, in some sense the inventor of gay marriage, and a sort of self-appointed arbiter of the morality and the respectability of the gay community. Um, Doing a living person, I think, takes us someplace interesting uh, in this podcast, because so far we've been talking about people who are dead, people about whom there's kind of a formed historical opinion, something we can push back on and challenge, um, trying to sort of reintegrate people into public conversations. Uh, And this is somebody who I think is all too integrated into gay public conversation, Um, somebody who basically, since the beginning of his journalistic career, has been the self-appointed, respectable gay who will write for the big mainstream publication, and somebody whose work in that role has, I think, done queer people and all people a great deal of harm. So the theme, I think, that comes to my mind when I think about Andrew Sullivan is homonormativity, and I think it's interesting to get into that a little bit. So... Coming out of queer theory in the 80s, um, this idea of heteronormativity, this word begins to arise, and it starts to show up in the work of people like Michael Warner and Gail Rubin. Um, Gail Rubin, in a really influential essay called Thinking Sex, begins to describe a sex and gender system as having, as there being a kind of charmed circle of good sex that society will tolerate and promote and then bad sex, sex that's non-reproductive sex, that's homosexual sex, that's cast outside of that circle. And that begins to give us a kind of theoretical tool for thinking about how sex is regulated by societies. And heteronormativity is a word that is used to describe the kind of um, paired-off, monogamous, reproductive, straight model. Um, In the 1990s, trans activists, uh, and Susan Stryker has kind of uncovered the history of this, start to riff on that word and they coin the word homonormativity to describe the ways in which gay and lesbian movements are privileging gay and lesbian people over trans people within them. Um Lisa Dugan often gets credit for inventing that word, but she's just the person who brings it into academic discourse, as with most things in queer theory and history, it's the activists, not the academics who get there first. And I think it's important to think about why and how this starts to be a thing in the 1990s, specifically. And I think it has a lot to do with the trauma of AIDS. Uh, Fran Leibovitz joked, but deadly seriously, with a kind of gallows humor in the late 80s, that if you removed all of the homosexuals and homosexual influence from what is generally regarded as American culture, you would pretty much be left with let's make a deal. Um, And she does that by way of pointing out that uh, during the AIDS epidemic, many of the most interesting people, the risk-takers, the artists, the frontline activists, died. And so that's one kind of trauma uh, that happens, where a lot of the frontline activists just die. And then the other thing that happens is a lot of people see their friends dying or their partners dying. And what happens when people die during the epidemic, if there's no legal relationship recognition, is that... Um, the dead person's awful family who hated them who never talked to them swoops in two days after they die and takes everything Um, and any surviving partners or friends get nothing and are left on the street if they're living together Um, and that experience obviously leads a lot of people to see relationship recognition by the state as a really important thing for which to fight Um, as these frontline activists die They get replaced throughout the 1990s by this kind of official movement which is funded and fronted by rich white gay and lesbian couples who had always distanced themselves from any form of activism that threatened their social position by destroying their ability to remain respectfully discreet. The activist journalist Michelangelo Signorile coins the term the closets of power to describe the kind of location that these people inhabit. And they start to come out during the 1990s, kind of on the backs of these dead activists, and they found organizations in their own image, organizations like the Human Rights Campaign, which are bipartisan, discreet, respectable, and trying to integrate gays into upper-middle-class life. And it's been pointed out that the tax benefits alone for the donors to these organizations have paid back a lot of their, you know, quote-unquote charity. When you add up what they're going to save on inheritance and income tax now that marriage is legal, Um, with the write-offs of all of those donations. You know, I sometimes like to say that the closets of power are still full of shoes. You know, these people are still running these organizations, and they still won't be associated with mass organizing or endorse the kinds of comprehensive social and economic justice agendas that would be required to end instead of just talking about the physical and economic violence that's habitually done to queer people by individuals in the state. Um, Lambda Legal, an organization where I used to work, was taken over just after I left by a billionaire heiress who canceled the prison rights and immigrants rights projects in the face of the incoming Trump administration. Um, New York City Pride's actual slogan until Trump was elected for many, many years was yesterday's struggle is today's heritage. And so I think Andrew Sullivan is a kind of example of this kind of thinking, this sort of emblematic closets of power and homonormative figure. And plus, as we'll get to, he's a literal race scientist. It's so tragic,
0: like that that very phrase is is so um, alienating and it's enough to move you to tears. Yesterday's struggles is today's heritage. Isn't it just
1: awful? Just truly awful, yeah. And, you know, it, it can move you to tears if you're a white gay guy living in a city, but if you're part of a community like trans women of colour in the US who are being murdered at epidemic levels and then you look at what's supposed to be the kind of emblematic symbol of you and of your movement... Um, and they're referring to the struggle in the past tense. It goes from just being sad to being murderous and yeah. murderous. Yeah. So, Sullivan is born in 1963 in Surrey into a Roman Catholic family, and he's educated at a grammar school and then at Magdalen College, Oxford. And you're going to pronounce my uh, correct my pronunciation of that, aren't you? It's actually pronounced Maudlin. Well, Maudlin is a good word to describe Andrew. Um, In his second year, he was elected president of the Oxford Union, and at this point in the early 1980s, he is a fervent Thatcherite and Reaganite. And he said later that the reason he became a Thatcherite and a Reaganite is because um, the Labour government in Britain, before Thatcher came into power, tried to merge his grammar school with a local comprehensive. So basically, his foundational political experience is um, being really afraid that he's going to have to go to school alongside poor people, at Oxford, he becomes friends with William Hagen Niall Ferguson and becomes involved in the Tory party. He then goes to the U.S. to do some graduate work at Harvard and in 1986 is named the editor of The New Republic. Now, I think a lot of our listeners might know The New Republic as a pretty staunchly left-liberal or even left-wing online magazine, but at this point in the 80s and 90s under its then-owner Marty Peretz, The New Republic is kind of defining the right wing of the Democratic coalition in the U.S. and is really actively engaged in an effort to move the Democratic Party to the right. This is the time when a phrase like, even the liberal New Republic thinks that, etc., 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 is often used because the New Republic will keep coming out in favor of right wing politics. He comes out of the closet rather quickly, um, and in the early 1990s he reveals that he's HIV positive. Now, the story of how he became positive is very interesting. He would never admit in his life to ever having had unprotected anal sex, and so he insisted that he got it through oral sex, which, as we now know, is basically impossible unless you have a lot of very fresh dental work. And the other thing is he claimed that it wasn't even through semen, it was through pre cum, which is super califragilistic impossible. And so he's Catholic, so maybe this is the immaculate conception and the virgin birth of the HIV virus. But what this leads to is that during the 1990s, when a lot of activists and scientists knew and were trying to spread the idea that oral sex could be a safer way for gay men to have sex with a virtually zero risk of HIV transmission, uh, people like Mike Callen and Richard Berkowitz, Andrew Sullivan is loudly proclaiming the opposite. At one point he refers to people who have unprotected oral sex as murderers, and therefore contributing to enormous amounts of misinformation and panic. Um, Now, to be clear, I don't know anything about the details of Andrew Sullivan's sex life, but there is one very juicy story that comes up later that leads me to have some doubts about his story of the Immaculate Conception here. So, after coming out as HIV positive, he makes his reputation uh, as a journalist, among other things, by writing some very large and widely read essays and pieces of journalism about AIDS. And it's important to note here that he is a very good writer on a sentence-to-sentence level, and he has the ability to write really beautifully about friendships and alliances that form among gay men during the epidemic. But then what he'll do is he'll turn immediately from that description to viciously attacking queer theorists who are able to write about those friendships as having some kind of deeper transformational political or social or structural meaning. For Sullivan, these relationships are temporary. He'll later say that after gays win the right to marry and serve in the military, Quote, we should throw a big party and close down the gay rights movement for good. Ah! Right. So, then, in 1989, uh, our friend Andrew invents gay marriage. And I say that with my tongue a little bit in my cheek. Obviously, this is something that's been spoken about before, but he writes an essay in the New Republic. um, And practiced before. And practiced before, yes. But he writes an essay in the New Republic that lays out this kind of conservative case for gay marriage. And I think it's important to note that this conservative case for gay marriage uh, will end up being really profoundly influential. It is right wing Catholic Reagan appointed Justice Anthony Kennedy who writes the opinion in Obergefell that brings uh, same sex marriage to the United States. And in the U- uh, UK, it's David Cameron's Thatcherite neoliberal pigfuckers who do it. So, really, this is the case for gay marriage. Whatever other cases have been made, this is the one that actually won. So, I think it's worth reading it pretty carefully. In the essay, he argues against fighting for domestic partnership laws that might have helped people to stay in their partner's houses as aged, ravaged American cities. He writes, quote, "...the concept of domestic partnership chips away at the prestige of traditional relationships and undermines the priority we give them. This priority is not necessarily a product of heterosexism. Consider heterosexual couples." Society has good reason to extend legal advantages to heterosexuals who choose the formal sanction of marriage over simply living together. They make a deeper commitment to one another and to society. Society extends certain benefits to them. Marriage provides an anchor, if an arbitrary and weak one, in the chaos of sex to which we are all prone. It provides a mechanism for emotional stability, economic security, and the healthy rearing of its next generation." In the context of the weakened family's effect on the poor, he writes, not sanctioning marriage in this way might also invite social disintegration. He then goes on to viciously attack anyone in the gay leadership who might disagree with him in terms that I think are going to become very familiar to us as we go through this episode. He writes, "...much of the gay leadership clings to notions of gay life as essentially outsider, anti-bourgeois, and radical." For the Stonewall generation, it is hard to see how this vision of conflict will ever fundamentally change. But for many other gays, while they don't deny the importance of rebellion 20 years ago and are grateful for what was done, there's now the sense of a new opportunity. A need to rebel has quietly ceded to a desire to be to belong. And goes on to say, Certainly, since AIDS, to become gay and to be responsible has become a necessity. And this frame of responsibility will come up again and again. Um... And he writes, actually, at the end, and I think this is really key to understanding the thinking behind this, since persecution of gays is not an option in a civilized society, why not coax gays into traditional values rather than rail incoherently against them? Fascinating. So it's very specifically about demobilizing any kind of oppositional gay subculture from the very beginning. Um, The AIDS journalism is repeatedly characterized by these attacks on the very radical activists who are the reason why he is still alive. In 2012, writing in retrospect on ACT UP in an article about uh, the David France movie How to Survive a Plague, he has moved on to the point where he'll admit that he understands why it's important, but he still wrote of ACT UP, quote, they would alienate people unnecessarily, polarize, disrupt religious services, and be a parody of PC claptrap. Some meetings were interminable victim fests. In 1990, uh, in Newsweek, again, George H.W. Bush is president. People are still dying. Um, What he finds important to write about is... That outing by ACT UP has, quote, become a way of enforcing ideological conformity on illiberal lines. Articles in Outweek have backed taking free speech away from anyone alleged to be homophobic and have urged the use of violence against straight oppressors. And he says that the fact that some of this material is presented as being as camp merely heightens the ugliness of the message. Can you imagine why gay people might have been really angry at straight people in 1990? You, I can't. Um, he talks about the meetings being painfully democratic, quote, accommodating loquacious bores who were each allowed their say. Um, Disgusting. I know. He writes dismissively of a plan for a demonstration for socialized medicine, saying that it would, you know, distract from the real important fight for whatever the hell he thought the real important fight was for. He wrote in the same article, this is again New Republic 1990, quote, Act Up as Kramer's brainchild is not about rational persuasion. Act Up has inevitably alienated a whole group of gay men, those whose own view of their own sexuality is more opaque, whose politics are more complex, whose lives are not so transformed. Uh, Going on, Now every closeted gay man has to fear the animosity of his fellow gays as much as straights. This is a conscious strategy of intimidation. So this is really noxious stuff, and I mean, again, he is always careful to note that he understands why people are angry and to describe the horrors of the epidemic in very um, vivid ways, but there's still always this quality of hippie punching and of setting himself up as this sort of respectable voice against the image of these irrespectable, unruly activists. And as we know from studying the history of this epidemic, it is that unruly activism that accomplished the limited amount that it did, and it's that activism that actually kept people like Sullivan alive.
0: Yeah, there's a real tone in his writing of, like you say, there's this, oh, I, I understand why you're angry, but then actually dismissing any change in your own political consciousness that might come through anger in order to fit in with his grown-up adult politics. And it's really very much like, if you want to sit at the adults' table with me and my friends, you know, you kids are going to have to learn to behave.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um... I mean this is someone who pleaded for gay solidarity once quote we need each other's support we do not need to tear each other down and then later that same year uh wrote an article complaining that all of the major gay organizations at that time had female uh directors he came out initially against the concept of employment non-discrimination legislation and then when it came in front of congress came out in favor of specifically excluding trans people from it um Let's just do a final list of things that Andrew Sullivan has said about gay activists. Their radical liberationist agenda, their quote, libidinal pathology, quote, the psychological violence of queer politics, quote, the sexual pathologies that plague homosexuals, quote, the cartoonish, buffoonish similarity of gay male bodies made in manic muscle factories. And again, this is somebody who equated unprotected oral sex with murder at the same time that he's yelling at ACT UP activists for being angry about the state of the U.S. healthcare system and for trying to block streets and subways to do something about it. So a lot of these arguments get collected in a book he writes in 1996 called Virtually Normal, which becomes one of the Bibles of the homonormative movement. Um, Larry Kramer ends up reading this book and saying the following... Quote, perhaps the best analogy I can think of is that when I hear or read Andrew, I feel like I'm talking to someone not speaking the same language I am. I don't mean a language like Urdu or Romanian. I mean a language like the biochemistry of newts. So in 1996 also, as many of us will know, uh, protease inhibitors come onto the market. And so um, for gay men in the United States with health insurance... um, HIV becomes a livable condition. And Sullivan writes an article for the New York Times magazine on the occasion of this happening called When Plagues End. And what's interesting, again, about this article is he writes very movingly about the experience of being called to gay identity and friendship through the experience of shared trauma, but as usual, all of the conclusions that he draws are profoundly damaging to all of the gay men in the world who aren't Andrew Sullivan, never mind women, never mind trans people. Um, A quote from this article. Quote, before AIDS, gay life, rightly or wrongly, was identified with freedom from responsibility rather than its opposite. Gay liberation was most commonly understood as liberation from the constraints of traditional norms, almost a dispensation that permitted homosexuals the absence of responsibility in return for an acquiescence in second-class citizenship. This was the Faustian bargain of the pre-AIDS closet. Straits gave homosexuals a certain amount of freedom. In return, homosexuals gave away their self-respect. So in a weird way, it's almost like he's praising AIDS for finally making us get serious. Um, so the hippie punching, even after the end of the epidemic, continues, and he continues to have this really barely disguised fury and hatred for anyone who does not conduct their life in a way that he finds respectable and responsible. He writes in 2001 about a trip to San Francisco, quote, The streets were dotted with the usual hairy-backed homos, I saw one hirsute fellow dressed from head to toe in flamingo motifs. Rarely have I seen such a scary crowd. Gay life in the rest of the U.S. is increasingly suburban, mainstream, assimilable. Here in the belly of the beast, village people lookalikes predominate, and sex is still central to the culture. I'd go nuts if I had to live here full time.
0: Oh, he's just a jerk as well, right?
1: He's a real jerk, and I also feel sorry for him, because I see this current of profound yeah. self-hatred. Yeah, yeah. Now it's going to come out really clearly that there's this 2001 scandal where... Sullivan, who has spent the past ten years uh, screaming at gay men for having sex, screaming at gay men for not being responsible enough, screaming at people that unprotected oral sex is murder, is revealed by a group of other gay journalists who were pissed off at him, including uh, Mike Signorile, who coined that term, Closets of Power, that he had a profile on a barebacking website under the name Raw Muscle Glutes, looking for partners uh, specifically for bareback anal and oral intercourse um, indicating an interest in posmen, men, bi scenes, groups, parties, orgies, and gangbangs. And I have nothing against any of that. In fact, it sounds like fun and maybe we should do it later, but the problem here is the hypocrisy, right, of using a position of power in the media to instigate a sex panic that, to some extent, implicitly and sometimes explicitly, blames gay men for their own deaths, and then to turn around and, on the side, be engaging in the exact same behaviour that you are condemning.
0: But, at least socially speaking, protected from the consequences of as
1: a rich, white gay man. Yeah, I mean, this happens in 2001, so it's just a couple of years after the protease inhibitors have come onto the market, and so, again, for Sullivan, it's now possible to do this thing, But it's not possible for a lot of other people to do this thing, and while he's doing this thing, he's still ringing the bell of marriage, family, assimilation, monogamy, etc. And... So now I think it's worth talking a little bit about the non-gay things that Sullivan was writing about in the 1990s and the 2000s, and the worst of them is, as I mentioned earlier, that Sullivan seems to be a rather committed race scientist. Um, in 1994, a book was published called The Bell Curve about um, racial and other kind of group differences in intelligence by Charles Murray and Richard Herrnstein. And Sullivan, as the editor of The New Republic, decided to publish an excerpt of this book and then spent a lot of time very vigorously defending it from its critics. The journalist Alex Nichols, writing last year, has called Sullivan, quote, "...one of the most consistent, committed defenders of the race and IQ Link." He goes on to say, "...despite the damage to his career, Sullivan remains convinced that white people are genetically superior to other races, and every so often he recapitulates this stance in increasingly wishy-washy terms." In 2017, Nichols points out, "...Sullivan compared protests against Charles Murray's appearance at Middlebury College to the Salem Witch Trials." So, let's talk a little bit about the arguments, and I, again, arguments in big scare quotes here in The Bell Curve. This is simply written a book of eugenics, in which the authors argue that human intelligence is influenced by inherited factors and is a really good predictor of a lot of personal dynamics like income and what kind of job you get and whether you're going to have children out of wedlock and whether you're going to be a criminal. And they argue um, that the average IQ in the United States is declining because less intelligent people are breeding faster than more intelligent people and that there's a large-scale immigration to the United States of racial groups that have low inherent intelligence and what they end up doing is suggesting that the US encourage high IQ women to have babies and discourage low IQ women from having babies and of course what that looks like is getting rid of any kind of child support or family support for low-income women and low-income families I don't have anything to say to that Right. And by the way, of course, Sullivan promotes this book, but is also against abortion rights. Of course. Right. So while Sullivan... Well, I mean, angrily it, it indicts itself. It does, yeah. Do, I mean, do we need to say anything? No. Um, so Sullivan uh, promotes this book as science and angrily defends it as science, but the book was not peer-reviewed and it would not have passed a peer review. Obviously, this is not science, but a political tract that uses eugenics to argue that the poor should receive less support and that they deserve what is happening to them. And it's not even like you can write this off as something that he believed in 1994 and doesn't anymore. Um, I'm now going to quote extensively from an article uh, Sullivan wrote in New York Magazine, where he has some kind of sinecure position, in March of 2018, so less than a year ago. The headline of this article is, Denying Genetics Isn't Shutting Down Racism, It's Fueling It. In that article, Sullivan writes, quote, where I do draw the line is the attempt to smear legitimate conservative ideas and serious scientific arguments as the equivalent of peddling white supremacy and bigotry, unquote. And I'm just now going to pitch in here and say that I believe that Andrew Sullivan's ideas consist of white supremacy and bigotry and of no serious scientific arguments whatsoever. And I also think the phrase legitimate conservative ideas doesn't make sense in the English language. (laughs) Um, Sullivan continues to argue, quote, that while past racism and sexism are foul, disgusting, and have wrought enormous damage and pain, and unavoidable natural differences between races and genders still exist. And then he goes into this whole rant about how liberalism has never promised equality of outcomes but made merely equality of rights. And then, Hugh, the second part of this article is an attack on the anti-Semitism and racism of the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn. Of course. I'm not making this up. I don't think you could make this up. And uh, Alex N- uh, Nichols, the journalist I mentioned earlier, places Sullivan alongside people like Charles Murray, who's continued to kind of harp on this, and Jordan Peterson, who are really into the authority that they get by saying the word science all the time, but once they're confronted with what scientific research actually means empirical testing, making your methods transparent, and peer reviewing um, they run away and prefer to rely on uh, deflection and rhetoric and debunked studies by neo-Nazis. And Sullivan is also, you'll be shocked to know, uh, very strongly in favor of the Iraq War Um, and he turns towards the Democratic Party uh, in the sort of late Bush, early Obama years and is now one of these voices who will write uh, urging Democrats to resist the path of Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez-style leftism. And to bring this to a close a bit, I mean, Sullivan is still often sort of the gay voice in mainstream publications and the epitome of this Human rights campaign style gay unpolitics. And in the wake of um, the Supreme Court's 2013 and 2014 gay marriage rulings, um, US v. Windsor and then Obergefell, um, again, both of which are written by Anthony Kennedy, who, like Sullivan, is a Catholic Reaganite, Ross Douthit, who is a right wing columnist for the New York Times suggested that Andrew Sullivan was the most influential political writer of his generation. He wrote of Sullivan's kind of conservative case for gay marriage, quote, No intellectual that I can think of writing on a fraught and controversial topic has seen their once crankish, outlandish-seeming idea become the conventional wisdom so quickly and be instantiated so rapidly in law and custom. And the terrifying thing is I think that that's true.
0: Now comes the part of the show where we awkwardly ask people for money. We don't have any sponsors, and we're not beholden to any big media company. We made this because we think these are important stories to tell, and we want to be able to keep sharing them with you.
1: And so, in proper idealistic millennial style, we've got a Patreon for you to check out. And Patreon is a way for people to support creators, good gays like us, to keep making the things that they make. So our Patreon is at www.patreon.com slash badgayspod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash That's badgayspod. And we've got a lot of great rewards for you. If you give five bucks or more a month, we'll send you a recommended reading list every month with the latest publications from me and Hugh and some other articles on queer political topics that we think are essential reading. Including stuff from the dark corners
0: of the internet that might not be so easy to find. Higher tiers include physical gifts like zines
1: and novels. Whatever you give is really appreciated and we thank you so much for your support. That's patreon.com slash badgazepod. And Saying Nice Things is always free, so if you're enjoying the show, you can rate us five stars and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us find new audiences. Thanks.
0: Yeah, as you were saying before, like his, that, that argument for gay marriage that he elucidated was the argument that carried the day when it came to the campaigning and the voting.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I mean, there's all kinds of different arguments for gay marriage that get made I think a lot of them were made in good faith and I think some of them were made in bad faith against queer people and queer theorists who were opposed to marriage as a political goal but yeah I mean the the central thing that came through in that campaign was the idea that uh, this was finally going to be gay people demobilizing and getting serious and this is somewhat personal for me I mean I came out um, right as the state in the U.S. that I grew up in, Massachusetts, legalized gay marriage. And I want to say first, before talking about this, that a lot of people have really traumatic stories of growing up gay in profoundly conservative and alienating places, and this is not one of those, and I don't, I'm not trying to kind of make an equivalent equivalence here. But From the moment that I came out and from the moment that I started to think about what a gay life might be or might mean, it was voices like Sullivan's and ideas like Sullivan's that dominated the kind of available framework that existed for understanding what I was and what this was and what all of this meant. And I believed a lot of this shit for a lot of time, and I resent having ever believed it, and I think it's really profoundly damaging and alienating to people because I think I mean gay men still have epidemic levels of loneliness we still have epidemic levels of suicide we still have in black and working class communities in the states epidemic levels of HIV, never mind what Sullivan said Mm -hmm. and I think to be confronted with this theory um, written by you know, some Oxford asshole that basically says that now that you've been allowed into these horrible, alienating institutions like marriage and the military, you should just be happy. Um, and why do you even need a movement? And why do you even need to identify as such? And why do you even need to construct your politics in this way? I think it contributes to that.
0: Yeah. I um I came out at uh, the tail end of Section 28, which was the um, law in England regarding from a local authority promotion of homosexuality in public places schools and libraries for example uh, which was uh, a terrible piece of legislation that made that really exacerbated people's isolation and loneliness myself included I had very little no support in fact at coming out at school and then i've seen that transformation from that to the conservative party being the party that passed gay marriage which it did in the uk and i see that as the, that movement as as the same movement um, with very different outcomes, but it's about uh, dealing with homosexuality through a lens of respectability and compatibility with a respectable mainstream.
1: Exactly. I mean, it's just what Sullivan says. Yeah. Um, In a modern society, we can't persecute them, so we might as well figure out how to demobilize them. And when he writes that phrase, he is addressing it at conservatives who he sort of prefaces might just want to not accept this or might just want to drive these people out of society. But I think even to write that as a gay man uh, demonstrates a profound degree of self-hatred.
0: Yeah. And to see how that strand of gay conservatism um, as it exists has been uh, even more divisive and uh, used to persecute trans people, for example, and people who don't in any way fit this model of what could possibly be respectable in the eyes of, you know,
1: the adults' table, as a metaphor I used earlier. Yeah, and Sullivan is still one of these people who, you know, a a large amount of his quote-unquote journalistic output at this point is yelling at campus activists for having done something silly and, you know, seeing in a world that is characterized by a climate emergency, emerging autocracy in the United States, et cetera. Et cetera seeing, you know, the quote-unquote illiberal foibles of campus activists as being this, you know, huge affront to all the grown-ups in the room who are trying to deal with the important problems, um, which I think is a really uh, morally unjustifiable and bankrupt and disgusting position to hold.
0: One thing I'm interested in, um, which is a slight detail from this conversation, but is do you think that contemporary gay conservatism and this split between um radical activists and respectabil respectability politics of the sort of post-90s era? Do you think that colours the way that we look back at gay history? And I'm thinking specifically the way that we look back at the difference between the homophile societies like the Matakine Society in the 1950s. And then the uh, gay liberation movement post Stonewall. I do, um, and I think are they of the same model? You know, is is Andrew Sullivan the uh, the heir to the Mattachine
1: Society? Well, which Matashine Society? I mean, that's the <laughs> other that's the other question, right? So, just to clarify, Matashine is founded um, in the late forties, early fifties, in Los Angeles by a group of committed communists and for its first four years is advancing an incredibly forward-thinking, I guess you could say, um, analysis of homosexuality as a form of social labor that is influenced by um, the left-expressionist politics of the Weimar Republic, that's influenced by um, Stalinist ideas of the meaning of a national minority, and that's influenced by the kind of uh, cultural riches of uh, Los Angeles during the 1930s and 40s, and the conservatives don't take over Madison until after the uh, McCarthy era really kicks off, and there's a lot of fear based on some newspaper columns, and I think justifiable fear, um, from new members who had joined who were not as ideologically committed that the ideology of the organization was going to put them in even greater danger than they were in. Um, so there's that, just to be pedantic mm-hmm. for a second. Um... The conservative strain in the movement at that time is interesting to think about. I mean, on the one hand, I think some of the ideologues are easily comparable with Sullivan. On the other hand, I think in the absence of the existence of any movement at all, the claim that we exist and we can coexist with you has a radical quality. That once you live in a world where there is a movement saying... We exist and we have work to do. We exist and we wish to transform the broader society. Um, Simply making the claim we exist and we want to be here and like you, except for this one little difference that you're never going to see, um, I think has a really different social meaning. Does that make sense?
0: That makes yeah, absolute sense, yeah.
1: Um, And gay conservatism, I think, is only... Increasing. Um, I mean, the sad thing for me, uh, reading some of Sullivan's writing, is that one does know a lot of people who think this way. I mean, he is not speaking for nobody. I think the temptation would be, um, if you wanted to be kind of comfortable and think about the gay movement as being purely good... The temptation would be to say, well, you know, Sullivan gets promoted by these big kind of straight media institutions as this respectable gay voice. Um, And while that's certainly true, I think Sullivan also does speak for a lot of people. I think that sort of, I mean, I'll use the phrase very intentionally, silent majority, with all of its racial and class implications of gay men and maybe lesbians, um, actually were seeking a movement that would help them make accommodation with upper middle class American or English life. Absolutely. And that's where we see um, increasingly now the gay and lesbian support for the far right and that's less true in the United States for various reasons because the bipartisan system has made it very clear um, which party is kind of for and which is against um, these kind of basic uh, gay issues but you know 20% Twenty percent of gay men in France voted for Marine Le Pen last time. Um, gay people and lesbians vote for the AfD in Germany at higher rates than straight people do.
0: The English Defence League had an LGBTQ
1: or LGBT uh, division, right? And you know, not you don't even necessarily have to go to the far right, but just to think about, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of gay Tories now in the UK, especially after marriage equality, and always has been. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think that's another interesting point, which is that. You can't look at anyone's politics related to their sexuality outside of the way that their sexuality and sexual identity intersects with their economic class position, their, uh, the racial politics, the society that they live in, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera.
1: Of course. And if you think about, and we talked a little bit about this kind of rubric during our conversation of whether James I could be called gay or not, but you know, the, the options that are available to people in terms of a gay identity evolve alongside, and this is an argument uh, by Peter Drucker, evolve alongside and in ways that are profoundly shaped by evolving systems of production and accumulation and um, evolving kind of racial ideologies. And so if, and so accompanying neoliberalism comes this homonormativity and Andrew Sullivan becomes its prophet, and I think all of the ways in which his work is imbricated in these profound self-hatreds and racial violences points out the kind of bankruptcy of both neoliberalism and homonormativity as responses to life on this planet. So Ben, I think I know
0: the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, Andrew Sullivan, bad gay?
1: Very bad gay. Not as bad as Rame, who's an actual Nazi, but very, very bad gay. I sort of feel like I need to take a shower after reading all of his articles. Yeah, you've persuaded me. Uh, if people want to read more about Andrew Sullivan, um, there are two articles that are available online that were written in 2001 right around his uh, bareback scandal, one in The Nation by Richard Kim and one by Richard Goldstein in The Voice. On the outline in 2018 was an article by Alex Nickel about... Sullivan's history of support for race science and, of course, available for everyone is the depressing and alienating body of his work. Um, so, if you want to follow us, the podcast, on Twitter, you can do so at BadGaysPod. If you would like to support the podcast, you can visit our Patreon, and you've heard how to do that earlier in the show. And I am on Twitter at BenWritesThings. I'm at Hugh Lemmy.